don't know the, the strength, the greatness, the, the power of something until it's tested. So, if you are a weightlifter, I'm not. You don't know what your max is until you, like, you test it out. You've got to put the weight on there, and you've got to see if you can lift it up. If you are trying to see how fast your car is, the only way to know is to put the pedal to the metal and see what it'll do. Not necessarily suggesting that. Mothers, you probably didn't know how much you could do without sleep until you were tested with your children without sleep over and over and over again. You, you didn't know what lengths could I go to? How much energy do I actually have until that was tested? Seniors, you're probably getting ready to hear some stuff like this that like, you never know how high you're going to soar. So shoot for the moon and maybe you'll get the stars thrown in or something like that. Right? You, don't, you won't know until you're tested. You'll hear something like that in the coming weeks. And, and the same is true for our faith. We don't know how strong it is, really. We don't see it displayed until it is tested. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you know this is coming for him in a big way as we're nearing Isaac's birth when, and Abraham is going to be tested in his take Isaac up and kill him. We know that this is coming. But before it does, I think God is so kind to have given us this passage because here's what we see tested before Abraham's faith is tested again. We see God's covenant faithfulness tested in a way. And how do you, how do you test how, how strong, how great, how powerful God's faithfulness is? God's goodness is, God's mercy is. How do we know these things? Well, we, we know the Bible says it. It says of His faithfulness that is as high as the clouds. We know that the Bible says it, but the Bible also shows it. And how does the Bible show it? Well, one way it shows it is through Abraham's story. Through his repeated failings, through his sin, we get to see how strong God's faithfulness is toward Abraham. We get to see how much covenant faithfulness God actually have when that covenant is being tested time and time and time again. We get to see that his covenant faithfulness is enough. To hold on to Abraham, to hold on to the people of God when they repeatedly turn away from him. It's enough to make us, as the people of God, trust in God's covenant faithfulness in any and all circumstances. Whether that be our own sin or the sins of another, whether that be in our dealings with foreign relations, whether that be in war, the people of God can trust in God's covenant faithfulness because God is faithful. He says it, He shows it in the Scripture over and over again. And this is displayed in Abraham's dealings in chapter 20 and 21 with Abimelech. So, in chapter 20, Abraham is going to relocate. There's no reason given for this, but he journeys into the Negev. If you look in verse 1, from there, in chapter 20, verse 1, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived in Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now, I put a map up here for you, so you might remember... That we were in the Oaks of Mamre. That was where Abraham had settled for a while. It's kind of in the middle, right by the Dead Sea. You see Sodom and Gomorrah on the east side of the Dead Sea there as well. So we've, we've kind of been around there and, and looked at that valley. And now he's moving. You see Negev is at the bottom there. He's moving. This isn't a full picture of, of where he could have been. But you see Gerar and Beersheba are both going to come into the story here. So he's, he's relocated. He's moved a little bit. This, this doesn't sound that big of a deal. It sounds pretty innocent that, that Abraham is moving again, but it does bear some similarities that we saw before. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called by God, he received his promises, and he went where God showed him, and then all of a sudden he starts going to Egypt. It was a bad move, a, a move in fear for him, and so it, it bears some similarities to that, and the similarities only increase as we move through the passage. You look in verse 2. 
And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now now we know the, the, the similarities between the story. And Abraham went to Egypt and said the same thing of his wife there and was taken by the Pharaoh. And then we just think, like, not again. You, you, how could you be doing this again, Abraham? Like, what are you thinking? How long have you been married to this woman? Like, do you, you care about her at all? Like, what is going on? And Abraham, we know he has this fear of people in the land. And his fear of the people in the land has driven him to this repeated sin. Sin that he had done in Genesis 12 and 13 when he, when he had gone to Egypt and faithlessly given up his wife at that point. And here, he lies. Again, she's my sister. It's, only a, it's a partial truth, but he's lying, right? He's lying, and he's giving up his wife. So this is a, a heinous sin before his wife and before God for Abraham to do this. And so now, as in Egypt, as in the former chapters when Abraham has done this before, the promises of God are threatened. Because the promises of God are coming through Abraham, and they're coming through Sarah and their offspring. That's how they're coming. If they're going to be a blessing to the nations, it's coming through their offspring together. So all of this is threatened as Sarah is taken again. Because these kings do not have intentions to just leave her alone and let her live nicely in the palace. I mean, you, you understand, they're, they're being added to the harem here. There's, there's something that's threatening in on her life and reproduction and all this stuff. And so this is a big misstep, a big sin from Abraham. And we have to ask, are we surprised by this? Are we surprised by Abraham's repeated sin? Shouldn't Abraham be beyond this at this point? You've been following with us. We've gone through Genesis. Like 25 years this man has walked with the Lord. 25 years. 25 years. Shouldn't he be above this kind of behavior, this kind of fear? He's been with the Lord 25 years. He's heard God speak to him. He's seen him in visions and dreams. He's seen him wipe out Sodom. Shouldn't he be beyond this? I think the answer is, is that we should not be surprised by Abraham's Repeated sin. And we should not think that he was beyond this. Why? Why? Because we give a serious reading to Genesis chapter 3. Where sin entered the world. And we know that we live in a fallen world. A fallen place where all people were were fallen. We're under the curse. We're under sin. We are slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us. We are dead in our sin. The the New Testament tells us as well. So we shouldn't be surprised because we give a serious reading to Genesis chapter 3. It really is that bad that now we are all in sin. We are all broken. It's not just that we do bad things. We we think wrongly. We're motivated wrongly. Every part of us is affected by the fall. We're infected with this sin. And we've we've seen all as we... All we walk through Genesis, we've seen this over and over again, this repeated pattern of men being really sinful. Over and over again we've seen it. We know what's in man because we've seen it in Genesis. We believe God's Word, what it says, that we have this fallen nature, that Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are, by nature, children of wrath, that we are slaves to our sin. We should know all these things, and when we see repeated sin, it should not surprise us. But we also know it because we see it in us. Do we not see it in us? If we give our lives any sort of thorough examination at all, if we look at it at all, we know that we're not different from Abraham. We know that we're not above repeating even some horrible sins time and time again. Sure, we're not as bad. I don't think, hopefully most of us aren't as bad as we could be. But that doesn't still mean that we're we're probably, we likely are worse than we think. The fallen nature and the state that we're in is probably more dire than we even know. 
And we have these, these pet sins, all of us, that, that bloom forth, that, that bud from, from idols that are rooted deep in our hearts. Lust, greed, envy, pride, fear. They are rooted deep in us. And so before we throw our hands up at Abraham and say, Not again! How can you be giving up your wife again? How could you be lying again after what happened in Egypt? How could you be doing this again? Before we do that, we need to think about our own lives and, and give them a, even like a, a, a short examination to think, Could this happen to me? Could I be in this type of sin? And the answer is yes. And here's what's worse is that we've seen more, we've heard more, we know more, and we have more in the Spirit of God than Abraham had. No, we shouldn't be surprised at Abraham's repeated sin here with Sarah. But we also shouldn't be relieved. And here's what I mean is that we can look sometimes at biblical characters and find a sense of relief, a sense of comfort when they're bad. When they're really bad characters, we can enjoy that a little bit. Right? So, David, he committed adultery, he murdered, he's all... So, I mean, I guess if he's done that, God forgave him, so I guess God will forgive me. Or Abraham, he repeats his sin here. So, I mean, I guess it must not be that big of a deal because God doesn't destroy him like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Or we could go with Samson, like all the bad stuff of Samson. We look at all these characters of God and we say, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal because they're not utterly destroyed. And we can look around us and even at other people around us and we can say, oh, I'm not the only one doing that thing. Good. But what often happens is is that that, those kind of thoughts don't ever lead us into pursuing holiness more. Most of the time what they do is that they they lead us into subtly justifying our sin. Subtly relieving our consciences. Subtly comforting the guilt that is in us by looking around and saying, Oh, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Abraham's done it. David's done it. Samson's done it. You look down through the line. You look around the people around you. Everybody's done it. It must not be that big of a deal. But Paul knew how easy it was for our sinful hearts to take characters like this and stories like this and justify sin and find comfort in sin or excuse our sin. And so he says in Romans chapter 5, this is not a new argument. It says, now the law came to increase the trespass. The law is like a mirror. It holds it up in front of us, shows us all of our flaws, shows us our sins. So the law came to increase the the trespasses, show you your sin. But where sin increased, here's what he's talking about, the the amazing grace of of God. Grace abounded all the more. So that no matter how sinful you are, God's grace is, you're not beyond God's grace. It abounds in even our sinfulness. But then he goes on and says, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Makes sense, right? Good argument. right? Well, if I sin more, God's grace looks like it's more because it abounds. And if I sin abounds, grace abounds. It's a great argument. But he says, no way. By no means. Don't continue in sin that grace may abound more. Our sinful hearts will do that, though. They will look for ways to be comforted. They will look for ways to be justified. They will look for excuses in our sin. We will use Abraham. We will use other people. We will say, look, it's not that big of a deal. We will say, oh, maybe God's grace will abound if I'm just a bigger sinner. And the answer is, by no means, according to Paul. We shouldn't let anything, anything. There should be nothing that brings us comfort in our sin. There should be nothing that we look to to to, to be justified in our sin. We should not have any sort of relief or excuse in our sin. Why? Because sin is that bad. It's an offense to God. It dishonors His name. It's not to be taken lightly. Look at Genesis 19. This is how God deals with sin. This is how God thinks about sin. He destroys it. 
Instead, I think we should mourn sin. We should walk away from sin. We should kill sin. He says we should not let sin reign in our bodies. We should hate what is evil, Paul says. All of these things. And so instead of seeking comfort, instead of seeking justification, instead of seeking relief in our sin, we should strive for holiness. We should look to Jesus and walk the way He did, is what the Scripture says. That Jesus is our example. And when we look to Him, we're like, oh, wait. Yeah, it is that bad because He wasn't. He didn't have sin in Him. We are to live obedient lives, to seek to honor God, First Corinthians says, in all things, whether we're eating or drinking, we want to bring honor and glory to God. We ought to be able to pray as one pastor prayed this. He said, Lord, make me as holy as is possible for a pardoned sinner to be. That's, that ought to be our desire and our prayer. We shouldn't look to Abraham and be like, oh, I'm so relieved that he repeated sin because I repeat sin. I know, like, he repeated sin and we want to move toward holiness and we ought to mourn for it in Abraham's life and we ought to mourn it in our own lives and run away from it toward the Lord. Yeah, we're, we're going to struggle in, in, even sometimes and repeat some of our sins, but what it ought to do is it bring deeper trusting in God. Deeper abiding in Him. Greater awareness of our need of Him. And so we need to resist the temptation to find some sort of relief or comfort or justification in our sin because Abraham repeated it. And you can look around and say, everyone's a repeat offender, so I guess it's not that bad. It is that bad. So we should not be surprised by Abraham's sin, but we, we shouldn't be relieved by it. So with Sarah in the hands of Abimelech, the promises of God are, are at risk. They're in jeopardy. And so God has to do what God always has to do when He has sinful humanity that He's dealing with. He has to intervene. He has to be in the midst of it. Good thing, good news for us is that God is not outside of this world saying, well, good luck with everything. God is very much in the middle of the mix here. We look at verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? We know God doesn't kill innocent people. We saw Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham argued that case, and here he's arguing it as well. Did, not, did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, and now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. That's a pretty threatening dream from the Lord. But look what God is doing. He's a good father who's protecting his daughter, who his other child, Abraham, had given up to do whatever he wants. But God is still working to protect and provide for her in this dangerous situation. And He's doing it with His sovereign hand, His providential hand, as He restrains Abimelech. As He appears to him in a dream, He is working to protect His daughter Sarah. Add a few kind of threatening dreams in there, and, and all of a sudden Abimelech is, is afraid, and he's calling on Abraham, like, come out of here. we got to make sense of, of what's going on here. But it's a reminder that God is, is willing and will and does intervene to protect His people. We see verse 8 as it continues. Abimelech, he gets up early in the morning, bad dream at night, getting up early in the morning. And he calls his servants and he tells them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? 
Abimelech is saying to Abraham, you brought on, what does he say? A great sin. And he says that his people are afraid by this. In other words, they have a conscience. That they understand what they're doing, that was wrong. Especially, you know, you add a threatening dream in there and you you feel a lot of guilt and a lot of weight of it. They understand. In other words, there's places that aren't as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. That there are people that aren't living necessarily in that same way. Not everywhere is Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, Abimelech and his people, they have a conscience. They have a sense of right and wrong. And so they, they're trying to make things right now that they're threatened for the wrong that they were doing. And so here we have uh, the king of a nation coming to Abraham and, and calling him to account and saying what he has heard from the Lord. Do you see how backwards this is from what it was supposed to be? Because of Abraham's sin. He was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. He's a prophet. Prophets bring the word of God to the people. It's kind of going the other way for this prophet right now. So backwards. And here's what Abraham says about it. Verse 11, he said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Ah, oh, there it is again. We talked about it so much last week. Fear again. Fear. He's scared at what's going on. And fear is like all sin in that it is irrational in light of who God truly is. And all that He has done. So how is it irrational for Abraham to be fearful here? Well, we know this. We know that he's experienced God's deliverance. He experienced God's deliverance in almost an exact same situation in Egypt. Where he gave up his wife. Pharaoh is this powerful man. He owns the land. He owns the people. And yet God rescues him out of that. And and Abraham comes out of that deal more more rich than when he went in. Like he sins, he and he gets blessed, and he goes out. Right? God is delivered from that. You don't remember that Abraham fought four kings' armies with three hundred men. He fought all their and he won. No problems, no loss of life. Brought everything back. He has seen God's hand there. He believed God. He really believed God when God said, "Even though you're as good as dirt and your wife is as good as dirt, like you guys are just old, you're going to have a kid." He believed that. He believed it. Though we're old and almost dead, I believe that God is somehow going to bring. He believed all of those things. He's walked with God for 25 years, and yet he's scared of Abimelech, who we haven't even heard of before. I mean, we know he was around. He's not even. He's getting ready to fall off. I mean, like, how in the world could Abraham, after seeing and knowing all that he's seen and known from God, be scared of this king? He's scared of Abimelech. And the, the reality is that fear makes us do funny things. So the the Chick Fil A cow is not like a fun, lovable character in my house. This is the same. And I know other parents struggle with that cow. Scares my kids greatly. And so when they would normally like be eating stuff, they were like, they are scanning this place to see, like, where is that humongous cow? And it makes them do funny things, like they, like it's just a it's just a guy in a suit. Like we could we could let's rationalize here. Like this is a person. He's not trying to hurt you. He's here to have have fun. And yet they will they will not listen to reason. They will not let these things in. So. Fear makes us do these kinds of things. And when you, when you fear something, the reality is that you're controlled by it. It controls you. When you are scared of it, you are controlled by it. This is why it's so important, as John talked about last week, to fear God. That is the one great fear that we are meant to have in our lives. Because we're controlled by something. And no other thing that controls us is going to lead us anywhere good other than God. And so if we fear things other than God, they are controlling us and they are leading us in a direction we do not want to go. Whereas if we fear the Lord, He is the only one that will lead us in a good direction. And so we have this repeated warning that we've seen in these last few chapters that we need to not fear the things of this earth. That will not lead us anywhere good. 
It will lead us to a cave with Lot and his daughters. It will lead us to sorrow. It will lead us to giving up wives. Like, it will do all these things unless we are fearing God and Him alone. And so what Abraham has done is he has endangered his wife. That His offspring is in danger. Whether Sarah is pregnant this time or not, we don't know. And the promises of God are at stake. And all he does is he says, I was scared. And then he starts excusing it even more. Verse 12, he says, because she is indeed my sister. So that's a, a partial truth. The kind of his sister, he'll explain. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place in which we come. Save me. He is my brother. This is a bad move for husbands. Don't do this. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And he said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother... This is a good joke right here. I have given your brother... Good one. A thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. He's saying, like, here she is. Here's some gifts. We did nothing. And you know it. You're recognized it by receiving these gifts. But Abraham, he, he's excusing this stuff here. So, so here's, here's a quick summary of what happened. Abraham goes to this place. He's scared. He sins. He gives up his wife. The promises of God are at stake. God comes, intervenes, comes in a dream to Abimelech. Abimelech comes to Abraham, gives him all sorts of stuff and his wife back, and Abraham goes out. That's the, that's the summary, right? Abraham sins and messes up, and he gets a lot more than he came with. With no harm have happened to him. I mean, how does that happen? I mean, how does that happen, really? I mean, we mess up in our lives, like things go bad, and then it seems like they go worse. Abraham, he, he messes up and things seem to go well for him. Well, here's what we know. And we, we can't put our finger on how God works all the time, but we do know that God is abundantly gracious. And how often in our lives and how often in the Scripture do we see that God, even in sin, still is abundantly gracious to His servants. And so Abraham messes up big time, and yet God still somehow blesses him through it. What's more is that God still uses Abraham as an agent to be a blessing to this nation. And look in 17. Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife and the female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Here's what God does, is He still uses Abraham after all that He's done. 25 years He's walked with the Lord, and He still messes up in the same way He did a long time ago. And yet God still uses him, and here's His prayer. Abraham. Abraham's prayer was required for the healing of this household and of this nation. If Abraham doesn't pray as a prophet of God, they're not healed. That's what we're saying. God told him, if Abraham doesn't pray for you, you're not healed, essentially. And Abraham, who has failed, who has messed up, prays, and God hears him. God could have used any means at this point. He did not have to use Abraham. He did not have to tell him to pray. He did not have to tell Abimelech that you're going to need Abraham to pray. He didn't have to do any of this stuff. God could have used any means to bring healing. But instead, he continues to use his chosen instrument time and time again. This is how God works. And so Abraham's status, his standing, his place before God has never changed. And that is incredible. That God didn't cast him off or use someone else. We see this so clearly displayed as well in the story of Peter. You remember Peter? He's a good guy, apostle, following Christ, does some bold things, but he also does some lousy things. 
Christ warns him hours before he's like, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. Three times you're going to deny me. He says, no, I'm not going to deny you. He's not heeding the warning. <laughs> Listen to Jesus when he tells you what you're going to do. And what does he do? Right, he goes, and, and to people he doesn't probably doesn't know, even to a, a teenage girl, we think, we don't know her age, a young girl, Peter says, I don't even know Jesus. And so here's what you want to do. If you're, if you're Jesus and you know you're going to die, and you warn one of your followers, you're going to deny me. Like, listen to me so that you don't go this direction. And you die and you're raised and you're going to start a, a, a great following. And you're going to start a movement where the gospel is going to spread. Who are you going to pick to lead that sucker forward? Like, likely you're not picking the guy that denied you to a teenage girl. That is not the guy that's like, here's a bold man that will lead this process forward to the world. Like, People everywhere hate us. Let's pick the guy that was so scared of a teenage girl's opinion that he denied me. Right? I wouldn't have done that. Like if you're if you're doing a schoolyard pick, you're you're not picking Peter. Like he's not. He's the last one. But no, God. What does he do? What does Jesus do? John twenty one. Right. It's almost. I think that's why it's in the, the Gospel of John. Is so we can see so up close the restoration of Peter. Because what happens? Jesus takes Peter aside and he asks him three times, "Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?" And he doesn't say, "Oh, you do love me." Well, then just live out your life in peace and try not to cause a stir again. No, he says, "If you love me, you are still at work. Feed my sheep." He still uses him. He still employs him. He doesn't put him on the shelf and say, "You know what? You deny me. You've sinned greatly against me." You can be a part of my team, but I'm not really going to put you in the game. No, he says, you denied me, I forgive you. You love me, go. Go. Go and feed my sheep. And this, this is what we're seeing here. Is that this isn't just how God treats Abraham. This isn't just how God treats uh, Peter. This is how God is. This is how He treats His people. This is who God is. This is how He's done in our own lives. He didn't say, you know what, you've sinned, you've messed up, I'm done with you. He's not done with us. He says, nope, I'm, I'm picking you back up. What a great reminder to the people of God. That you've Amen. sinned greatly, but they still have a great God. Even though we repeatedly sin against Him, that we see in Abraham and Peter in our own lives this mark of grace that He forgives us and He still uses us. Amen. What good news to us. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. And not just mercy to say, I'm not going to kill you. Or I'm going to leave you on the team, but don't do anything else. No, this is mercy that will pick us up, that will use us, that will employ us, that will continue to empower us so that we can live for the glory of God. And this is what God does with Abraham here. He uses his prophet Abraham to bring healing to Abimelech, to bring healing to those around him. It all happens through Abraham's prayer. You, you could say in a way that Abraham's the one that caused the problem in the first place. And yet God is the one who still uses Abraham. Through him healing comes. It's amazing. But Abraham's dealings with Abimelech are not over yet. So on either side of of the birth of Isaac, we see Abraham dealing with Abimelech. There's one more episode if you look in chapter 21, starting in 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore... yeah, That should be obvious, right? You came in and sinned against us in some ways, and yet we gave you a sweet deal. God must be with you. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my 
posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear it. So the blessing of the Lord in Abraham's life is becoming more and more evident to Abimelech and and the people of his kingdom. And they're a little bit uncomfortable with it because here's what the, the blessing is looking like. He's a powerful man. He's got lots of stuff. He might destroy us. If he decides to turn on us at any time, we're going to be undone. So let's make a deal with him. Let's, let's settle this thing right now. They want to make sure that Abraham's family doesn't and won't in the future rise up and destroy them. And so I think this is actually a good idea considering that Abraham and 300 men destroyed four kings' armies. Make a deal with that guy. Right? God is clearly with him. But Abraham has a complaint that he wants to voice before Abimelech. So verse 25 says, When Abraham reproved... Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So there's tension in the land. And, and, and Pastor Jay has mentioned this before when they went to Niger. It's hard to appreciate uh, how important and how vital water and a well is maybe in the U.S. Because we, we turn on our faucet and water that's clean runs into wherever we want it. And we throw it on our grass even and don't even worry about it. Like, there are places where that's, that's not reality. Okay? There are places that they don't have water. A well is a really big deal. And especially here... I. I it's hard to know where exactly they are, but look, roughly in this area, it's, it's likely that they received less than nine inches of annual rainfall. It's a dry area. They're in the desert. So wells and, and streams and, and water, the sources of water are very, very important. So this is a source of great tension. And it continues on. Abimelech says, I don't know what, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until this day. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I have dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there were both of them swore an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba. And then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So because this is such a big deal around this well, they make a deal. And how you make a deal back then is is you cut a covenant. So this is exactly what is going on here. They are cutting a covenant. Some of these animals were sliced apart. And this is what we're thinking. Same kind of thing that we saw in Genesis chapter 15. Some of them were a gift. Some of them were sliced apart. They're, they're, they're saying, let it be to us, cut apart, torn in two, if we go back on this deal that we are making with one another. So that's what's going on here. So after Abraham's rocky start with Abimelech, he kind of improves his dealing, it seems, with, with him. But, but we don't want to miss what's actually going on. We have to zoom out a little bit. But here's what is going on in Chapter 20 and chapter 21 with Abimelech and Abraham. That God is working. In chapter 20, God is working to protect the seed. That's very important because we remember that God promised a seed. And only through the seed will one come and smash the head of the seed of the serpent. That seed is in danger with Abimelech. And yet God works through dreams, through Abraham's prayer to protect that seed, to protect that offspring. He also works to be a blessing to Abraham, to provide for Abraham and his family, to provide for the seed. He gets blessing out of this from Abimelech and from this kingdom. In chapter 21, here's what he's doing. is He's providing land. He's giving them land and access to the land. So in, in, in both of these chapters, he's giving them means, the, the people of God means to be a blessing to the nations. And so we have seed, land, and blessing. Does that sound familiar? These, these things that God is working to provide and, and protect are all the things that He promised He would do back in Genesis chapter 12. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring. 
You're going to be a blessing to the nations. And who is working to protect all of these things? Who is, who is providing all of these things? It's not Abraham. It's God. God is working all these things, even in these small details. In this story about Abimelech that we'll probably forget, and you know, I haven't even known it was in the Bible until today. All of these things, God is working to protect and to provide for His covenant promises that He made with Abraham long ago. And so God is working to fulfill every single part of what He promised to Abraham. And perhaps maybe the, the most astounding part of that is how this is all God's doing. That the people of God keep fumbling and God keeps recovering them and using them and protecting them and providing for them. That is that God's provision is very much unilateral. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. God just continues to get it. This wasn't Abraham's work. God had to intervene. He had to work. He had to bless. He had to be merciful. He had to speak. He had to come in dreams. He had to empower. He had to be faithful or it wouldn't happen. Abraham did not uphold his end of the covenant, but he wasn't cut off. And he wasn't excluded. And God didn't say, I'm finished with you. Why? Because God made a promise. And because God is always faithful to keep every single one of His promises. And so what God is displaying through the story of Abraham and Abimelech is something that He displayed in Genesis chapter 15, where you remember where God cut a covenant. You remember the vision? Abraham's in this vision. He cuts up animals. He puts them in two. And, and he gets this vision of a smoking firepot representing God Himself walking through these animals. Abraham, as, as a member of this covenant, is supposed to walk through. Two parties are supposed to walk through these animals and say, like, let this be done to us if we don't uphold our end of the covenant. But Abraham never walks through. Only God goes through saying that if you mess up or if I mess up, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be undone if anyone should break their end of the promise. And so we see God is saying, I am so committed to this. That I'm willing to be undone if necessary to uphold my word, to uphold my promise. And so we shouldn't be surprised when at the end of this we see that God is working to protect every single part of His promise. That God is acting out of His faithfulness, proving His faithfulness. Why are we not surprised by this? Because we've given serious reading to the Scripture. And in Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke, things happened. Every time. And so when God gives a promise in Genesis chapter 12, we know those things are going to happen. Amen. When He says He's going to give land, when He says He's going to give blessing and it'd be a blessing to the nations, when He says that there's offspring going to come, I don't care if Sarah is as old as dirt, there's going to be offspring coming. So we believe because we see God and what He's done in His Word. We see it all around His Word where it says that His faithfulness, it stretches to the skies. That's how it's described in the Scripture. But we see it in us, around us every single day. We don't face God's wrath. That is God being faithful to His Word to, to be patient with us, not willing that wanting any to perish. We see it all around us when we're not tempted beyond what we can bear. God provides the ways of escape. We, we see it all around us when we see God's saving work. Not just here, but every single nation where God said that He would work all of these nations. We see God's faithfulness. We see children around us. This is God saying, the world should continue. Here's kids as a reminder of it. I'm faithful to every single generation. I'm not losing hope with, with what's going on. Like God still knows what He's doing. And so we see His faithful character displayed time and time again in Scripture and all around us. All of it being to the undeserving. Amen. God is always at work to protect, to provide for, and uphold His name tied to His promises in His people. Always. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised when we look down and we see God is, has this strong covenant faithfulness to His people. But unlike Abraham, where we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be relieved, here's where we see that we shouldn't be surprised by God's covenant faithfulness and the strength of it, but we very much should be relieved. Abraham, Israel, the church, us, all of God's people have a very well-known track record of failure and sin and brokenness. Ask your children or your spouse. It is a known record. And when we look at all that God requires of us, we know we fall short. Haven't done it. Didn't uphold it. Can't keep my end of it. Couldn't do it if I wanted to. Tried and failed time and time again. And so what it shows us, it shows us is that we're in need of someone fulfilling their end and of someone fulfilling our end for the covenant to work. And it's a desperate place to be. And so it makes the good news of how God worked to solve this issue very good indeed. That the Word, that God took on flesh and and He comes and He upholds the covenant saying you failed on your end and so He was torn in two that He would uphold our end of the covenant. That God cut a covenant again in Jesus Christ and He comes and He says that this covenant is sealed by, by my blood. For the forgiveness of sins. That in this covenant, sins really are forgiven. That the Holy Spirit is given. That empowers obedience. That that fuels us for. That that lets us know that we are gods. That that employs us. That lets us know that we have giftings. We have things that God wants us to do. This is part of the covenant. We are all in it if you are in Christ. And so we see in Jesus how strong God's covenant faithfulness really is. It's perfectly displayed in Jesus. As He comes, lives, dies, and raises again. And so, with Abraham and Abimelech, and and Abraham specifically here, we we do see an an encouraging figure. We're encouraged. Not because of Abraham, but because we see God's mercy again. We see God's faithfulness and patience again. They're all displayed here. God didn't cast him off. God didn't say, you're done. And yet, it's likely that God's mercy still produced something in Abraham. We didn't finish the passage. If you go back, 21, verses 33 and 34. Abraham, he he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. What's the final say on, on Abraham's dealings with Abimelech? It's not failure. It's not how he messed up. It's worship. This is the final say with Abraham here. It's worship. Perhaps the the cutting of the covenant with Abimelech in the well jogged Abraham's memory. Oh, God cut a covenant with me. One that I couldn't keep, but he promised he would. And he looks around and God is keeping this covenant. Maybe that reminded him again of, of, of God and his faithfulness. But sin wasn't the final word. Failure wasn't the final word. That Abraham is more known even today for his faith than for his sin. That probably many of us, there's there's a good chance that maybe half of us didn't even know that Abimelech and Abraham had dealings in the Bible until we came in here today. Because Abraham is known not for his failings with Abimelech in that country. He's known for his faith in the living God. Abraham's track record with the nation so far has not been the best. Nations he's supposed to bless 
often full of sin. But this shouldn't surprise us again. It shouldn't relieve us. It should remind us that Abraham wasn't the answer. That God worked to provide the answer and protect the answer. Abraham was never meant to be the answer. But there was one that was going to come from Abraham. His offspring is the answer. Jesus Christ came and perfectly, ultimately displayed God's covenant faithfulness. So what do we see? This is important that God protected the seed. He provided the land, not for Abraham's sake alone, but to make a way for Jesus Christ. To make a way, and then for us. And for blessing to flow to every single nation of the earth. So God's covenant faithfulness seen in Jesus, seen in this story, shouldn't surprise us, but I sure hope as we hear it, that it relieves us. That God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we are so much in need of your faithfulness, of your mercy, of your grace. And yet, God, we, we ought to be astounded that we see it displayed and portrayed over and over again in the Scripture. That is, that you are trying to teach us that this is who you are, that we can count on your faithfulness, that we can depend upon your mercy and your grace as your people. So God, I pray that we would abide more, that we would trust more, that we would lean in on you more than we do now. And God, we pray that you would uphold your promises again in your people, that we would be a blessing with the gospel, that we would go and be a blessing to every single tribe and tongue on this planet. And God, we know that we do it that the one that you promised long ago, Jesus, would receive every bit of that glory that he deserves for him coming, living, dying, raising, for that blessing to flow. God, thanks for your faithfulness. Help us to be relieved by it today as we recognize our own lack of it. God, you are good. Amen.